Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The period after Christmas is the time of Epiphany. The dates on it vary. Various groups, various churches celebrate it differently. But it's the time of Jesus' baptism. There's a voice from heaven. When he comes up out of the water in Mark, he saw the heavens and the Spirit in the form of a dove descending and the voice from heaven says you're my beloved son and you I am well pleased and so there are these periods in the life of Christ where there's actually a voice from heaven or some appearance and so the word epiphany is from the Greek meaning manifestation or appearance derived from the verb meaning to appear the whole gospel of Mark actually the Transfiguration appears in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, and you know, maybe it's there in John. But Mark's Gospel is built around three moments in the life of Christ, which reveal the beginning. His baptism is the beginning of his ministry, his transfiguration on Mount Tabor is at the middle and then his crucifixion. And so each of these events is a transfiguring theophany, you know, a theophany, an appearance of God, a showing forth of the glory and reality of God. And the the word that we have in English for theophany is a moment of metamorphosis, the English word really from the Greek that is the equivalent of transfiguration. The baptism signaling the metamorphosis of the uncreated logos assuming a created nature. The transfiguration, the moment when the human nature of Christ reveals the glory of the divine nature. The crucifixion, the moment when sin and death are transformed by Christ's sacrifice. And so these images are sacred because they reveal the divine presence. But maybe the key moment is the moment of transfiguration on Mount Tabor. And so let's read that from Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. 
Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. At once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore, except Jesus alone. And they were coming down the mountain, and he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And so while they're on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became glistening white. Luke tells us in his version that Jesus was resolved to pray, and in fact it was in the midst of praying to his Father that he experienced this transfiguration. It says, and the appearance of his face changed. Matthew informs us that Jesus was transfigured, his face shining as the sun, his garments becoming white as the light. And the prophets Elijah and Moses, they were discussing his exodus or his departure from Jerusalem. Luke says, behold, two men were talking to him. They were speaking of his departure. Second Peter references the transfiguration in 2 Peter 16 to 21. Peter says he received divine confirmation of Christ's power. He was an eyewitness, he says, during the transfiguration. He's using it as a kind of proof of the power and majesty of Christ, but also of the word that is delivered to him. So let me read the, the section here from 2 Peter. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, and so were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. So what he's saying is, we trust this word that we have from God. We trust the prophetic word. We trust scripture. The transfiguration is the word of scripture made sure. The word of God transfigures. The scriptures transfigures us. As Matthew says, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And so we move towards our transformation, our participation, our deification, our theosis. Irenaeus says the transfiguration was the visual appearance of God's kingdom on earth. And it raises our gaze up to our original destiny, which St. Peter asserts, our Lord's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And through his great and precious promises, we may be partakers of the divine nature. You hear that? Partakers of the divine nature, escaping the corruption 
that is in the world. So all humanity, humanity may be participants in this divine nature. And Jesus taught, abide in me, and I in you. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Now, John doesn't exactly describe the transfiguration per se, but maybe you can think of the entire ministry of Jesus in that sense, because John says in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's as if the whole ministry of Jesus is a kind of transfiguration. Paul references the transfiguration in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. We are being transfigured into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So what happened to Christ, Paul is saying, is happening to you. Revelation is bringing about, it's posing itself as this transfiguring power. It's the saturating gift of the divine logos. The, the word creates, it reveals, redeems, deified through the flesh of Christ. That is, it's an event in the incarnation through the word of scripture, through the body of the church. And so what we're describing is presence, God's real presence with us, as opposed to a kind of deferred presence, or, you know, what we might think of as presence. That is, that God is present here in an, in an unmistakable fashion. And really, in the economy of the Bible, the presence or absence of God is determinative of success or failure. It's equated, you know, if God is present, life is present. If God is absent, if God turns his face from you, if God forgets you, well, that implies destruction. And so from the opening verses of Genesis, God's presence in the garden, you know, is represented, I believe, by the tree of life. The tree of life only appears again in the very last book of the Bible, in the last chapter, we see the tree of life is restored. God's presence, full access to God is restored. And we see in, the, in Genesis that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And of course the idea is God is present, all is well. And then with the entry of sin, access to God, access to the garden, access to the tree of life is cut off in Genesis 3. Now the Bible then records a kind of false presence. You know, that's there in Genesis. Well, you don't really need the presence of God because you have the knowledge of good and evil. You have the law, or this is really what idolatry is. Paul says the letter of the law kills. And so in the language of the Jewish Kabbalists, they say that Adam makes knowledge his own destiny and his own specific power. In terms of our discussion about idolatry, they re he reifies the knowledge of good and evil. He reifies human understanding. 
So too with Paul, the law is not inherently deadly. It's not that there's anything wrong with the law, but it's what we would do with the law. We would reify it. We would make it substantive. And by this means, lend substance to the one who takes up the letter. The letter kills, Paul says. Why does it kill? Well, obviously, there's no life in it. There's no spirit. God is not present there. And so another approach to the same idea is the idol. And Paul actually uses, he'll talk about what the Jews do with the law is on the same order of falling back into idolatry. The idol is visual. You know, it's invested with substance. But we do that through our language or idea. It's made a divine spectacle. Not because the wood or metal from which it is crafted contains particular power. But we invest it, or the idolater invests it with divine power through his own. He projects it through language. And so we can displace God's presence, is the point. We can displace God's presence with the letter. We can displace God's presence with the knowledge of good and evil, human language. We can displace God's presence with the idol. I think our tendency then is to displace God's presence. The letter kills and it cannot produce the presence which comes from God alone. And so the question is what do we mean by this presence? It's not simply I don't think that God's nearby but I think we can say that God's presence accomplishes what the felled pursuit of the letter maybe attempts. The human word ossifies, it entombs, it kills. Whereas God's word made flesh brings about the commingling. You know, that's what the transfiguration is. The commingling of the divine and the human. And so in the same way that Jesus Christ is both God and man, and that's what we're seeing on the Mount of Transfiguration, so those who take part in his identity experience this same bringing together of the divine and human, the hypostatic union. As the psalmist indicates in Psalm 73, in his presence, God's presence is my good. This is goodness. In Psalm 16, God's presence is equated with life and joy. There's nothing better, Psalms 27 says, than to dwell in the house of the Lord, in his presence, and to behold his beauty and meditate in his temple. So the person of God is portrayed throughout the Hebrew scriptures as you know, his presence is the fullness of life, blessing. God assures Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Israel that he will be with them. He will be present with them. And there is no cause for fear and they will endure. They will be successful. God says to Moses, In Exodus 33, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And of course, this is salvation. This is the way salvation is pictured in the New Testament. It's equated with having presence, access to the presence of God. In Ephesians 2.18, for through him Christ We both have access, have our access in one spirit to the Father. 
You know, Jews and Gentiles, all people have access to God. Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Luke 22, you know, is picturing the giving of the body and blood of Christ, that we partake of the body of Christ, that he is present with us. That's the significance of the communion. Romans 8 talks about receiving the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is the imagery, you know, used throughout the Bible. But in Hebrews 10, it talks about that we enter into the Holy of Holies, the place that God is present, that we have access to his presence. Or in Revelation, that we inhabit the city of God, that God is present there. His light shines. And all of these are, this is what salvation is. To enter in into the presence of God is salvific. And this presence, it gives, it is eternal life. It is peace. It's love. It's joy. It's hope. It's forgiveness. It's freedom from sin. We have access to God in prayer. I believe, though, that what is meant by Christ or God's presence, it's not simply, you know, the word as you begin to think about it, it's actually a difficult concept to understand. What does it mean? And I think that God's presence is not just an instance of presence in general, but I believe it carries a very peculiar and specific meaning in Scripture. That is, the presence of God pertains to the indwelling, the active presence commingled with the person that we have life and the life that we have is in and through his presence the presence of God is equated with the gospel itself that here we have the presence it's equated with grace and truth it's described in Colossians that it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God. It's a developing presence. It's a transfiguring presence. And so the presence, as Second Peter describes it, has obtained a hold on believers. He says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. This presence is an ever-increasing reality, culminating in the presence. You know, this is the word parousia, the coming of Christ. It's just the word presence. Christ is coming. Christ's presence is being revealed, is actually the idea that his, his presence is there, but completely unfolding. In 1 Thessalonians, he's talking about the parousia, for he who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? And so he's picturing the presencing, the parousia of Christ, as even now evolving. In 1 Thessalonians, as the saints increase and abound in love for one another, they are established without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints.
And so in and through this, his presence, a process of sanctifying preservation is enacted that is secured at the final presence, at the final parousia. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there must be an active pursuit, John tells us, of abiding in his presence. Abide in him, 1 John 2.28, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. We're practicing the presence of God even now, preparing for the full presence. Maximus the Confessor describes the person of Christ in this manner, in which there is a real presence. It's in Christ, but in every believer. He does the things of man according to a supreme union involving no change, showing that the human energy is conjoined with the divine power. Since the human nature, united without confusion to the divine nature, is completely penetrated by it, with absolutely no part of it remaining separate from the divinity to which it was united, having been assumed according to hypostasis, the union. That is, he assumed our being that we might assume his, joining together in his spirit as the substance of our life, his body. You know, we have life, we have presence through his word. As Peter says, we become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption of his absence. So he was transfigured. And as Paul says, we are being transfigured. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, are being transfigured, are being metamorphosized into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.